Oh, the, yes, I always forget the slides. Great. Well, pulled in this morning, and my son Jonah noticed the, um, the little retention pond had frozen over, and he was quite excited uh, about the potential of walking on the retention pond. And so we warned him, it probably is not uh, what you're thinking, but on a cold day like today, it's always nice. Sometimes I feel like the kids have better perspective uh, <laughs> than I do, that's for sure, as far as I usually don't go outside when it's uh, under 60 degrees. So, uh, but the kids just so excited about the ice on the pond. Uh, this morning. But um, we are continuing in uh, 2 Corinthians, as Pam just read, uh, the second part of chapter 6 here. And the Apostle Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. Uh, he's reminding them, he's challenging them on how they're, li- how, how they're meant to live in light of the undeserved grace of God. Uh, how they're meant to live in light of this undeserved grace, this, this grace of God that's come to them in this, um, there in Corinth. And it's really addressing this central uh, theme throughout much of the Bible is, is this idea of idolatry, of giving ourselves to created things rather than the creator. Uh, and G.K. Beale is an author, he, he put it like this, and I've, I've mentioned this before, but I think it's relevant here. He said, the nature of idolatry, the nature of, of giving ourselves to things that are created, to lesser things rather than God, is that we resemble what we worship either to our restoration or our ruin. That, that we actually take on the things that we worship, that we, and worship could be things that we give worth to, and that leads either to restoration or ruin, that we begin to resemble those things. Uh, the nature of worshiping is giving worth to. So the long story of the Bible woven throughout history and in time, throughout centuries, if you read it, is a people that were called by God, a people who were rescued by God, a people who were given the law of God, a people to which God had revealed himself to them. This is known as the people of Israel. He had called them out. He had revealed himself. He had sent them and their call was to be a light to the nations around them, to go and to live among a people as the people of God, and to be a light because they had received, they, know, they knew who God was, that God had revealed uh, who he was to them, and called them his people. And yet, instead of being a light to those around them, they, they ended up becoming like those around them. They end up becoming like, they start worshiping the pagan gods and the idols. And we see it again and again, God calling his people back away from, out of this idolatry of, of that. You see, because they started to resemble the very idols that they worshiped. If you think of an idol, a lot of times we think of maybe the show Survivor and the idol with uh, the immunity idol. But um, what idols can't do is they can't see and they can't hear. And what happens when we give ourselves to things lesser than God is that we actually become blind and deaf. We begin to resemble those things that we give worth to. And it leads to our ruin, not our restoration. And so this is the passage Paul's writing that the promises we receive from God in Christ, the the presence of God within us, the, the commitment of God to us, it should change how we live in relation to those who don't know Christ. It should change us. It, 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 it should be a marked change within our lives. Um, Paul is writing most directly 
So there were false, uh, false apostles within this church in Corinth. There were, there were people there uh, leading people astray, that they were taking part in pagan festivals, uh, that they were, there was temple prostitution that Paul addresses, that there was all sorts of division within the church. They were creating the JV and varsity uh, Christians uh, within the church. And so Paul's writing against these false apostles there that, that were just kind of indifferent to the way in which they were living. And Paul's saying, you know, I, I didn't come as one who's eloquent with my words, um, but I came as one who, who delivered Christ and him crucified. Um, one of my favorite study Bibles, if you're in the market for a new study Bible, it's called the Gospel Transformation Bible. Uh, I think Crossway publishes it, but it, it, it um, traces the story, just seeing the gospel throughout all the scriptures. Uh, but it has really good summaries of different aspects of, of uh, different books of the Bible. But they gave a summary of this passage as this. It says, undivided living in response to undeserved grace. Uh, you could say it like this, that who we are changes how we live. Or what we have received in Christ changes who we resemble. The covenantal love of God, it, it compels us to conduct ourselves in love and pursuit of holiness. And so want to look at, um, we want to look at those two ideas of, of this undesired, uh, that the uh, promises of, or sorry, we're called to live with, for the purposes of God in light of God's undeserved grace. So I want to look first at the undeserved grace of God that Paul's talking about here. And we're going to look at three different things. He says, we're the temple of God, we're the people of God, and we are adopted by God, that we are sons and daughters. So we're the temple of God, the people of God, and adopted by God as sons and daughters. So the temple of the living God. See, the temple uh, was the picture and the place central throughout the Old Testament where God's presence was most fully known and seen. So when, when people would go and they'd gather the, te- the temple in the Old Testament, and that was the place where if you wanted to truly encounter God's presence and, and, be, and, and see God's presence, that's the place once a year the high priest would go into the Holy and Holies and, and make atonement for their sins. And it, and it talks about the presence of God. It's, it's where it was most fully known and seen. And yet Paul's going to say here in verse 16 that we are the temple of the living God. He's saying that after Christ and the resurrection, that is actually the people of God who now God has chosen to, to that we are the temple, that, that God makes his dwelling among us. He's, verse 16, I will make my dwelling among them, that God has come to us. So those questions that we often have of where is God? Is he near or far? Can I know him? How do I get to God? Does God love me? Is God disappointed in me somehow. See, the claim of Christianity is not that we ascend up to God. It's that God has descended to us. That God has come to us. That God has revealed himself to us. It's not us seeking God. It's God who has come to us and lives among us and dwells with us. And the miracle of the gospel, of the good news, is that the risen Christ, the spirit of the risen Christ dwells within us. And so Paul is saying, God has come to dwell within the people of God, the church. And so when we gather here, uh, it, that the temple is no, it's no longer a building, 
but it's the people of God together and God who dwells in us. God is near, so he dwells within us. Second, he says we're the people of God. There's different phrases or words that, that people use uh, to take on, that they take on as like a personal identity or a mantra, and different cultures and things may have those, uh, those type of sayings, but have you ever thought of uh, people will say certain things and then they, they try and emulate or live that certain lifestyle. You know, a, a while back you heard uh, YOLO all the time. I don't hashtag YOLO. I don't think hashtags are even in anymore. But like that idea of you only live once, that idea of, you know, people would post pictures and everything of their bucket list and, and everything like that, that they're trying to present, they're trying to live, they're trying to act in such a way that identifies with this idea of you only live once. Um, I got stuck thinking of more ideas after a while, so I asked my good friend Chat GPT uh, yesterday to give me some more examples, AI-empowered ser- sermons, uh, <laughs> to give me some more examples of things that people seek to live by. Uh, carpe diem, seize the day. Uh, if you know those people that are just love to take hold of the day, you know who they are probably, maybe that's you, but just go out and seize the day. Uh, but they truly live by that. So they may say that, but, but where they seek to live like that. Chase your dreams. Uh, Hakuna Matata. No worries. It's a favorite of my kids' songs. Um, life is short. Play hard. No regrets. Live, laugh, love. You have all these things that, that people will take on and, and almost see. You can almost see the way that they play it out and, and the mindset to which they live. And it, it really, truly changes their whole ethos of, of, of how they want to live and who they want to be. Now, there's words in the Bible that are repeated again and again that illustrate and illuminate who God is and how we relate to him. Uh, there, these are words that shape our very identity. Um, and those are, this is called the covenantal language, but, but Paul quotes it here, and he's quoting, um, he's quoting out of Leviticus, but outside, first in verse 16, he says, I will make my dwelling among them, walk, walk among them. And he says this, this is, these are those words. He says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And this is, this is called the, the covenantal language that God says this over and over again. In Genesis 17, he says, I will give you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. Exodus 6, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who's brought you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. Leviticus 26, and I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. Jeremiah 7, obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. It's over and over and over again that God is committing himself to us. He's he's saying that we are his people, that he has um, committed, bound himself in what's called covenant, uh, to, be, to be with us, to reveal himself to us, to, and, and that we are his people. It gives us a deep-rooted identity that we are his people. Charles Spurgeon wrote this uh, in, about this verse. He says, How much meaning is couched in those two words, my people? All the nations of the earth are his. The whole world is in his power. And yet we are his people, his chosen, 
He has, brought, he has bought them with his blood. He has brought them to himself. He has set his great heart upon them. He has loved them with an everlasting love. See, see, I forgot the slide again. Oh, there we go. We see that. How much meaning is couched in those two words? Where God comes to us and says, you are my people. I've given you identity. I've revealed myself to us. All the nations of the earth are his, the whole world in his power. Yet we are his people, chosen. Third, we see this, that we're adopted by God as sons and daughters. Paul says, verse 18, I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. See, God has come near to us. This is what he's reminding those, uh, those in Corinth there. That we go from orphan to son or daughter. We go from slavery to free, from darkness to light in Christ. It's where we are known, we're loved, we're pursued. We are those who've been given the undeserved grace of God and can know that God has committed himself to us. And so it says, we are the temple, you're the temple of the living God. You're the people of God. But even more than that, I will be like a father to you. You are sons and daughters. Romans 8, 6 through 16 through 17 says, The Spirit himself bears witness within our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with them in order that we may also be glorified with them. See, what he's saying, if you know Jesus, no matter how bad this life gets, it ends in resurrection. Our status as sons and daughters united Christ is this. Glory awaits. And so when he's talking about those in Corinth and, and those who've come to Christ, he's reminding them of all that he's done that's completely undeserved, that we can't get up to God. There's nothing that we can do that merits our salvation or our favor with God, but he has come to us. He has put his favor on us. And no matter how bad everything gets, it ends in resurrection. It ends in hope. And if you live in light of that, if we live in light of that, it just changes our whole perspective on all life. It changes everything about us in the here and now and how we're meant to live. And this is where Paul is getting at. He's saying, what fellowship is light with darkness? What accord is Christ with Belal? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? See, what we see is knowing Christ changes our whole outlook, changes our whole purpose of all of our life, of what, the way in which we are meant to live and relate to the world around us. Uh, this morning, I was preaching to the wall, uh, as I do, uh, to make sure <laughs> things are a little bit more clear when I actually get up here to speak. Uh, I had a professor in seminary, he said, um, a mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pew. And uh, what he's saying is if, if the preacher is unclear, it, no one's going no to know what's going on. <laughs> and so, uh, but as I was preaching to the wall this morning, um, <laughs> I, you know, looking outside, you know how cold it is outside. 
and I, you know, I was standing a little bit, could, could hear the heat just always on, the, and, just, and I'm thinking, oh, their energy bill's going to be crazy this month. But um, as the heat was coming out, I just kept thinking, like, you know, the, the whole purpose of having a furnace uh, is to produce heat, that, that it's designed, it's made for, that's what it's for, produce heat. And so if someone is meant, if someone came to our house, and on a day like today, and, you know, they're like, it's really cold in here. And if they said that, and I was like, no, the, the furnace is on. The furnace is, you know, it's on. It's, wor- it's working. It's, it's doing that. And they'd say, no, it's, it's blowing cold air. Uh, and I'd say, no, the, fu- the furnace is on. Can't you, f- you feel the air? And they'd say, no, you know, no, it's blowing cold air. It's not doing what it's meant to do. And I think that Paul is getting at a little in a small illustration of this, of that those who have been have received the grace of God, those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus, those who the resurrection defines all of their life, they're they're meant uh, to live now for God's purposes. They're meant to live in a different reality, in a, a new world, because they see hope, resurrection, life. They know that they're, they're not pursuing meaning from within themselves. Now their meaning comes from God and Christ. And so just as a, a furnace is meant to produce heat, we are meant to live in a different way. And I want to look at two things here that Paul is saying is that we're to relate to the world in a different way and we're to actively pursuing, pursue holiness. So we're to relate to the world in a different way and actively pursue holiness. First, we relate to the world in a different way. Some of the false apostles of the church in Corinth, um, Paul had helped, Paul planted the church in Corinth. But what was happening is, and I mentioned this before, is that they were really living in the present. They were living according to the city in Corinth. And Corinth was known as a very ungodly place. It was a very metropolitan city. It was full of cult or, or idol worship. And, there, and here, people in the church were participating in paganism. They just seemed indifferent to the things of God. And um, as, we, as we see the first question of the Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Confession of Faith, is this. It says, what is the chief end of man? Or you could say it like this. What is the ultimate purpose of our lives? And the answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That, that becomes the chief purpose of what Paul's saying, verse 14, says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So a yoke, it's a wooden beam used between a pair of oxen. Does anyone have oxen? Any, uh, I don't, I'm not very agrarian. I don't think most of us are here. But it's a, a wooden beam used between a pair of oxen or other animals and it enables them to pull a load. So it's a giant wooden beam. And if two animals were unequally yoked, you say you have a stronger animal or, or uh, so you've got a big strong ox and then you mix it in with a donkey or something. Um, let's just say your wagon's not getting to its destination is what Paul's saying, or the Wells Fargo wagon isn't coming to town for Music Man fans. Uh, or if you had a watermelon field, it's not going to turn out like you think uh, because these uh, two oxen, uh, these two animals bound together are just going different directions. They're, it's not an equal uh, runway there. And so it doesn't work. And so this is what he's saying is that 
Christians ultimately are to have no partnership with idolatry and, and paganism. And this isn't a call uh, to just circle the wagons as followers of Christ and to distance ourselves and to just live within our own community. No, this is a call, uh, just as Jesus was, to be a friend of sinners, but to live distinct and separate lives. Uh, uh, the basic question to the Corinthians and to us here is, do our lives show that we belong to Christ? Does my life show, the way that I live, show that I belong to Jesus? And does our church collectively, do we show to the outside world that we belong to Christ? Is it apparent that Jesus is what we treasure and is our great pursuit? Where else do we see mention of yoke in the Bible? You recall Jesus says this. He says, come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It's Matthew 11. But you wonder, too, if Paul, not only calling back to unequally yoked in Leviticus there, but is, is also remembering the words of Jesus, how his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And if you're yoked to Jesus, you can't, you can't be yoked to something else. To other pursuits. And we, it's so easy to take things like money and find sense of security, satisfaction, worth in that, or, or even within our kids and our families where that thing becomes the ultimate thing. Uh, where we take created things and we look for them, to them, for significance, for status, for, for finding our fulfillment. Often we can do that through a job or through work, through our career, where we just feel like that is what gives me life. That is what gets me up in the morning. And we become yoked to those things that, that are completely opposite from the central pursuit of our life, which is meant to be Christ, Christ at the center. Then second, we see we're, active, we're to actively pursue holiness. So chapter 7, verse 1, the end of, this text, Paul writes, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. We see here Paul's writing out of love. He's calling them beloved. He's calling them dear friends. But it's this call back to pursuing Christ and him crucified. And it's really getting at this when we talk about that, that cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, that, that every aspect of our lives, that there's an active pursuit to become more and more like Christ. That, that the fuel of that is not to earn status before God, not to earn our salvation, not to merit acceptance before God, the fuel of that, what does he say in the very beginning? He says, since we have these promises, he's just, he's just finished saying that we are the temple of the living God. He's just finished saying that you are the people of God if you're a follower of Christ. He's just finished reminding us that we are adopted sons and daughters, that, that God is a father, no matter what your father was like. If we think of God a father, what does a father do? A father loves us 
A father understands us. A father cares for us. A father keeps us safe and secure. A a father reminds us of his love and his care. A father allows us to be who we are, secure and safe uh, within them. They define us. And that's what Paul just said. says, since we have these promises, says now, therefore, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And this gets to that of what are the desires, the motivations of our hearts. And this is hard to know often because we're all blind often to our own sin. But it's what are those things deep within our hearts that are keeping us from truly um, delighting in and displaying the love of Christ? What, what are those things that, that we long for or that we're finding worth in that are more than Christ? So the jobs, money, kids, status, among others. Maybe it's just a pride or just a critical spirit that we have uh, towards others or, or everyone who's not doing it right. No. Paul's saying we're meant to cleanse ourselves. It's this, this action that we're meant to take. Um, the, see, the Corinthians there, they weren't living out of their status as a new creation. Uh, they seem to kind of be indifferent towards God and how they're living. And this is what idolatry does. This is what giving ourselves to other things do, is it, it blinds us. It doesn't lead to restoration, but it leads to, to ruin. And he's saying that the foundation for the pursuit of holiness, for living lives set apart, from seeking to root out idolatry in our hearts, and not, and not take part and value what, what those who don't believe value, the basis for this, the promises of God. This is an active pursuit, fully dependent on the Father. And we see the perfect example of this is in Christ, in Jesus. If we look at the life of Jesus, what was he? What did he do? He's fully dependent on the Father. He was a friend of sinners, and yet he calls people from their worship of created things to him as creator. Jesus goes to the cross willingly giving up his life. The one who is everything became nothing for our sake. He who is all the riches became poor so that we who are poor might become rich. See, the end is that God is accomplishing his plan of redemption. The Son glorifies the Father. See, Jesus lives in perfect obedience and holiness, and he did that for us. He did it for us, so not just on the cross does Jesus declare us forgiven, but through his life, his perfect life lived in our place, he fully showed us what perfect holiness, what what perfect longing, uh, uh, what perfect living is meant to be. And so Paul's saying, We can then go out in freedom, not as seeking to earn God's favor. And this isn't a try harder. It's a, no, trust in the promises of God that you are my people, that I am his and bound with him. And that should change drastically how we live. When you read the New Testament, there's stories throughout history of the church of of those who've encountered Jesus, their lives filled with the pursuit of the purposes of God. People who leave safety and security for, for the sake that others might know Christ. 
uh, people know that in their suffering, they identify with the one who has suffered. People who go out and become friend of sinners. People who pray constantly and seek to live with meekness, purity in heart, poverty in spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. People who give up control of our lives and instead entrust to God who's in control of all things. People who have an unanxious presence in turbulent times, not trusting in politics and money or our own sense of control. A good question to ask as we close in relation to this passage is this. Do I long for others who don't know Christ to know him? Or do I long to be like others who don't know Jesus? See, it's often that pursuit, that picture in our mind that we may have of the good life. Of if everything was perfect, what would we want? If everything went according, if we could be someone, who would we want to be? And I think that's a good diagnostic question often, is do I long for others to know Christ that I'm around? Or do I long to be like others who don't know Christ? Is there something in me that looks at others who may not have Christ, but they look at, you look at others and you say, I want that. I want to be like that. I want to pursue that. And that's what he's saying. Let's, let's root that out because God has given us all things in Christ. And so we see that the undeserved grace of God changes how we live here. And this is Paul's encouragement to those in Corinth uh, here. And it's an encouragement to us. We as a temple of the living God, God's presence dwells within us and among us. Let's pray.